Hello, everybody. This is Jen Matteris. And before I get started with the podcast, I'd just like to wish everybody a very Merry Christmas, a Happy Hanukkah, a Joyous Kwanzaa, a Festive Solstice, and a Happy New Year's Eve, and any other holidays that I may have missed. Uh, There's lots of holidays this year, and I hope that everyone that you check off the list is a good one. I'd also like to say that if you can, please think about contributing to our Kickstarter. It ends tomorrow, so time is almost up. If the goal isn't reached, the Kickstarter doesn't go through. If that does happen, I will still be honoring all of the requests from those who donated $25 or more. You've all given me really great suggestions, by the way. And if you'd still like to donate that money, even if this Kickstarter fails, you can do so through PayPal at disasterarea at mail.com. Thank you guys again so much for listening this year. I've had a really great time making the podcast. Also, please keep in mind during this episode that all times mentioned are in the central time zone in the United States, and all of the temperatures mentioned are in Fahrenheit. And with all of that taken care of, thank you very much, and welcome to Disaster Area. Episode 24, The Schoolhouse Blizzard, January 12th, 1888. Over 250 deceased, hundreds injured. I have seen the dread of Dakota. Homesteader Sadie Shaw about the schoolhouse blizzard in a letter to relatives back east. Every year on Christmas, a lot of us hope for a white Christmas, but hoping for snow or even just expecting snow can turn out worse than you can possibly imagine. Now, our story today starts in 1888, or at least takes place in 1888, And just to give you some idea of the news stories that were going on in 1888, what was going on in the world at the time, uh, the previous November in 1887, six men had been hanged for their parts in the Haymarket riot. That same month, the character of Sherlock Holmes made his first appearance in print. Now, while the events of this episode were taking place in the Great Plains, the National Geographic Society was being founded in Washington, D.C., Later on in 1888, an unknown person would brutally murder and mutilate at least five sex workers in the Whitechapel area of London. That murderer would come to be known as Jack the Ripper. And in November of 1888, the Democratic incumbent president, Grover Cleveland, would win the popular vote, but lose the Electoral College vote to Republican candidate Benjamin Harrison, thereby losing the 1888 United States presidential election, a problem we would never have again. (laughs) So um, anyway, what our story focuses on and what you need to understand before we get started is that the Great Plains in the United States were... Uh, very much a waypoint in 1888 and basically at this period of time between the East Coast and the West Coast. Uh, The gold rush in California had started in 1848. Uh, The Donner Party had set out for California in May of 1846 and ended up spending the following winter snowbound and starving to the point of cannibalism. The quote-unquote last spike in the Continental Railroad was driven on May 10th, 1869. And at that particular point in time in um, 1888, uh, nine territories, which would eventually become 10 states, made up a lot of the Midwest. 
the Dakota Territory would, of course, become North and South Dakota. Now, in 1862, Abraham Lincoln signs the Homestead Act. Uh, it was the first of several Homestead Acts that America would enact. Uh, the Homestead Act that he signed said that any adult who had never taken up arms against the government, which included women, black people, immigrants who had applied for citizen citizenship, basically any adult who had never been in the Confederate Army, uh, could apply for a parcel of land through this act. You just needed to reside on the land for five years and improve it during that time. And all you really had to have was the $18 for the application, and you and your family could have 160 acres of land. Those who had served in the Civil War on the Union side had a year stricken from the five-year residency requirement for every year of service in the Union Army. So it was really an enticement for those people who had been in the war to go west and establish a new life with their families on the Great Plains. Over the last 30 years of the 19th century, over 225 million acres of heartland, of the heartland, excuse me, was broken, stripped of sod, and planted with crops. The Homestead Act and a lot of the um, draw that came from that, which basically almost practically free land, come here and, and start over, uh, caused many immigrants to write home to families in Germany, Scandinavia, Russia, etc., and tell them they're, they're basically giving away land in America. Now, as with most times throughout history, this was a time of great strife in many places throughout Europe. So dropping everything to move to America may have sounded like something that would be worth a try. Of course, to do that, you had to endure a lot. You know, it's not like now, you don't get on a plane and fly all the way over here, um, which, you know, it's a long plane trip, but back then it was a little more involved. Families would have to sell everything but what they could fit into a trunk or two. You'd sell your land, you'd sell your belongings, everything down to the door hinges uh, to be able to afford the trip and to get to where you were going and to be able to pay that $18 so you can get that land. The first thing that you would have to do t was go on a long ride in steerage across the Atlantic. Now, I believe I said so before on this podcast, but steerage was not how you picture it from Titanic. You know, everything white, maybe a little Spartan, but still pretty clean and nice. Uh, it was not a lot of fun. Uh, for the most part, it was basically that you were cargo. Um, and a lot of these trips, uh, you know, you're... you're stuck in a place with a lot of people who are um, who are poor and may not be in the best of health. So, you know, if somebody comes on and they've got TB, everybody now has TB, or a lot of people may have TB. You know, you're in this cramped area for a couple of weeks, at least. Um, there were um, people who died on board and they would give them a burial at sea. Sometimes parents who were taking their children across the sea would hide the fact that their child had died so that they wouldn't have to bury them at sea. Um, it was desperate measures. This, this whole trip was very difficult. You basically have everything that is in that trunk and the clothes on your back. Uh, then you would get to New York City. Uh, at this point, you are going through immigration. They're, you know, they're asking you your name. They're checking uh, your name uh, to see if you are a um, a dissident or um, something of that nature. They're checking you medically. Um, 
And you might not even be able to stay in the country. They may find that you have tuberculosis or you have some other disease and they might put you right back on the boat and send you back to Europe. Uh, there were a lot of people who immigrated between 1850 and 1900. Uh, about 16.5 million uh, people immigrated, uh, but many never made it beyond the city. You know, some were sent back to, to uh, Europe. Some decided to stay in New York City. Uh, some didn't even get that decision. There were times where, you know, you would lose all your money or, you know, you may um, have it stolen, you know, you may lose it in gambling. You know, there's a lot of different reasons why people um, may have not been able to even leave the city to start heading to the Midwest. Um, however, many hundreds of thousands did end up being able to get on a train car, uh, which, you know, they weren't fancy there either. You weren't getting a nice cushioned seat that you could recline and sleep in. It was um, barely better than a cattle car in a lot of uh, a lot of situations. And you would start to head toward, say, Wisconsin or Iowa, one of those states. Once you get there, you may need to locate a wagon to take you to the Dakota Territory or Nebraska. Um, just because there's a transcontinental railroad doesn't mean that these rural places have a railroad that will reach where you're going. And a lot of times, these were people who were coming to America because their families were already there, people they knew were already there, and so they were trying to get to those places and get to those people because that's literally the only people that they know in this uncharted territory in this in this land that they don't know the language most likely that they um that they have a connection with who can help them and support them while they try to set up what they're doing otherwise they're on their own and it's hard enough to do it when you do have that support but when you don't it's 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 twice as hard now, once you arrive on the land which you have, uh, which you have signed the paperwork for and applied for and, and moved on to, uh, now you have to build a house. They don't come with houses on them. You have to build it. And the easiest way to do that, relatively, was to build a sod house. Now, these sod houses required about a half acre of sod. They were basically just bricks of the sod. And uh, they'd put planks on the roof and just put sod on top to kind of give it some more uh, stability, I guess. And that would be their home. At least for a while, you know, maybe in a couple of years they may build a frame house out of wood, but for now they just have this. Um, and you have to understand, you know, obviously in this time period, you know, a lot of people were, uh, were having a lot more children, um, having many children. So it could be you and your mom, uh, you know, you and your wife and your 10 children crammed into this little sod house. And the thing about the sod houses is it's a house made out of dirt. It's not a house made out of mud, which is, um, you know, a lot of different cultures and a lot of different places, you know, mud huts or mud homes um, are, you know, used a lot. And in, in those cases, I mean, they're wet, they dry, they, you know, they harden. Um, in the sod houses, you don't get that. And so what you have is that dirt starts getting into everything because the walls are dirt. So you're getting grit in your clothes and grit in your food. Uh, it leak, they would leak when it rained. Uh, so you're kind of getting this muddy drip from above. Uh, and of course, like, you know, the wall is grass and, and dirt. So you may turn around and look and see a gopher head pop out of the wall or a snake pop out of the wall. Um, I 
seem to recall, and maybe my memory is making this up, but I seem to recall one of those uh, Lifetime movies where they, um, you know, where it's set on the Great Plains and it's sort of a, you know, sort of a, a old kind of West sort of um, romance movie. I and I what I seem to recall about this particular scene is that the wife is in this sod house and she's doing all of her sort of um, chores and things and she just sort of casually reaches over and yanks a snake out of the wall and then throws it outside and that's sort of the image that I had when I read that um, the uh, another thing that you had to worry about was heating the soddy the sod house uh, you really had to use whatever was available um, you know it's the Great Plains um, you know, wood is not something, you're not going to find a huge amount of trees everywhere that you can just, you know, that you can just, you know, cut up and burn. So there's a lot of different things that are available. I mean, you can use coal, um, there's flax straw, uh, buffalo bones, um, animal chips. And when I say animal chips, I mean sort of, you know, kind of the dried dung. Um, but you know, you used whatever you had. Uh, and that was the thing with settling out there in the middle of nowhere. Um, you were really on your own and so you know if things went bad you just had to find a way to deal with that now even with that sort of heating you your entire family might be sleeping in the same bed for warmth during the winter it might just be you and your parents and your six siblings all crowded into one bed um just so you can be warm enough to survive the winter now, these parcels of land were not right next door to each other on a main road. It's not like when you're, say, in the suburbs and you're just kind of driving along and here's a house and there's a house and maybe the 160 acres stretches out behind it. These were sort of checkerboarded over the, uh, over the land. And so you were out there on your own. Um, you were maybe a mile away from your nearest neighbor. You may be half a mile away from your nearest neighbor. You were not really close at all. And particularly, you may not be close to town. So it may take you a while to get to town. It may not be something that you do on the regular. It may just be something that you do, um, you know, uh, every once in a while or just, just for the bare necessities like school, like buying supplies, that sort of thing. The thing was, though, that a lot of these new, new arrivals, particularly from Europe, would quickly discover that there were certain things they had not been warned about in these rosy letters that they were getting uh, from family members. Um, I seem to recall there was, um, in the main source that I used for this particular episode, uh, which is called The Children's Blizzard by uh, David uh, Larkin, Laskin, I believe, I don't have it next to me, um, but uh, it was... Um, it was that there was a, a Norwegian immigrant who had written home and it had some, said something along the lines of, uh, had quoted someone basically, the line basically said something like, you can tickle the earth and the ground will sing up a beautiful harvest, which is a beautiful image, um, but it really wasn't exactly true. Um, there were a lot of different problems for those who were settling the Great Plains. Um, brush fires would start on a regular basis. Uh, if, if drought occurred, that grass that was all across the Great Plains was just dry and brittle and would catch in an instant. So it would be scorched a lot of the time. There were fires that would uh, burn for uh, days, weeks, uh, that sort of thing. 
Grasshoppers were a problem too. Um, there was a particular uh, species of the Rocky Mountain locust, the Melanopsis phrytis, I believe, and practice saying that. Um, but it's now extinct. But back then, it would be um, basically it would fly overhead in this huge swarm, and it could strip the fi a field bare in hours. Um, these these grasshoppers would swarm down, and they would just eat every bit of vegetation, every leaf, every. Uh, bit of corn, every every piece of wheat, everything that they got in touch with, they would eat. And eat, then they would try to eat things like wood and cloth while they were at it, like you know the curtains and the the, the tools. They were just they were just starving or devouring everything in their bath. But the weather, notably the winters, could be harsh. They're actually harsher than a lot of um, immigrants from Scandinavia and Germany were even used to. It was just really. Um, the, the, the Great Plains are, are in a spot where um, weather kind of circulates and, and, and moves a little strangely. So at that particular time, it really um, kind of surprised a lot of people just how bad those winters could be. In fact, some of these winters were so cold that the families who had finally been able to build a frame house to replace their original sod homes would actually move back into the sod homes because they were easier to keep warm. Um, and when I say they're cold, that these winters were cold and that they were brutal, you know, part of it was the snow, but a lot of these winters you were seeing just regular, like just on repeated days below 20 degrees, uh, you know, 20 degrees below, 10 degrees below, 30 degrees below, um, you know, the, being below zero for an extended period of time was not unusual for this area in this particular time. It really wasn't. Now, in 1880 to 1881, the area suffered through what was called the snow winter, which was called so because the storms started early and they never really let up, so it just kept snowing. Um, Laura Ingalls Wilder actually wrote about the snow winter. Uh, it was the subject of her book, The Long Winter, obviously. Um, she wasn't actually the only writer who lived in the area around the time of uh, this particular disaster. L. Frank Baum uh, based his work on the in the Wizard of Oz series on his time in Aberdeen in the Dakota Territory. He'd actually never been to uh, Kansas, which I didn't know. That was something neat that I found out. Um, but in the snow winter, um, the thing about stuff like this is that you're trying to look for a positive story, um, something to make you feel better. And in that particular time, I mean, you're searching the newspapers looking for something. And they found their story. Uh, there was a 15-year-old boy named Michael Dowling who was caught out during the storm. And he survived, but he ended up losing both legs below the knee, his left arm below the elbow, and all of the fingers and most of his thumb on his right hand. Uh, he was really um, in a spot where... Uh, it, it may, must have been really difficult for him, but he actually later became a teacher, a newspaper editor, and speaker of the House of the Minnesota State Re uh, Legislature. So he accomplished a great deal over the course of his lifetime. Later on, um, before this particular uh, winter that we're going to discuss came up, uh, there was the winter of blue snow, which happened from 1886 to 1887, that winter that spread from the end of the year into uh, the beginning of 1887. This particular winter killed off a lot of the cattle. 
that was uh, being uh, herded and, and, and fed and, and, you know, kind of spread across the plains. Uh, the worst of it came on January 28th when 72 hours of fiercely blowing snow and Arctic temperatures swept across the plains. Uh, this storm left 10 to 12 million head of cattle dead in its wake. Uh, the frosts would actually still be happening in the following summer uh, in 1887, as late as June 10th, and the grass was so dry that it burned through July and August that summer. Uh, so, you know, this gives you some idea of what these settlers are dealing with. The weather is appalling. Uh, you know, the winters are terrible. Um, you know, you're lucky if you can manage to make a harvest every year. Um, it's it's really trying um when it comes to weather prediction in 1888 um uh it's still you know it's still a little um uh, difficult uh, in terms of it's still it's still having growing pains as a science uh weather prediction at the time in the united states was under the supervision of the signal corps of the u.s army uh, that had begun in 1870 uh, all forecasting was done by um, indication officers, you know, sort of meteorologists, uh, but that's what they called them was indication officers. And they actually called forecasts indications. So if I say that word, that's what I mean, forecasts. Uh, they were all working in the signal office on G Street near the War Department in D.C. Uh, what would happen is that they have all these observers all across, kind of dotted across the country, and they are... Uh, you know, kind of taking measurements um, at certain times of the day, and then they would, um, you know, you're, te you're taking measurements of temperature and wind speed and all of those different kind of things, and then you're telegraphing them uh, to uh, the uh, signal office. And their uh, civilian and military meteorologists uh, would send back predictions based on the observations that you gave, as well as those of others throughout the U.S. So they're basically getting a bunch of data, making an assessment, and then sending that assessment out to everybody. The officers who would do this particular job, these indications officers, would get tapped from other branches of the Army to get trained for six months to be signal officers. And if they showed aptitude for it, they would become indications officers. So um, uh, the thing about being an indications officer is they had kind of, um, uh, they ha had kind of, you know, different rules and, and things that they did. Um, they were forbidden from using the word tornado, which must have been difficult given the weather on the Great Plains. Uh, they thought that coastal cities were immune from hurricanes. Not really. Um, and they depended a lot on, on kind of observations along with proverbs, you know, kind of, you know, the red sky at morning, red sky at night, that kind of thing. Um, many storms really escaped them altogether. Um, they were warned of too late to be of any help. They were vague. I mean, it's not the, it's not the, you know, today we have, um, you know, we have the news, uh, newspapers, we have, um, uh, you know, we have the internet, we have TV, radio, we have apps on our phone. Um, I know that I have an app on my phone that tells me the weather and uh, it gives me alerts every time there's some sort of snow warning or um, storm warning, anything like that, which is really good because otherwise I would never check. Um, but um, back then you didn't have that. And so, you know, you have these people who are taking these observations out in the field. Um, they may or may not be able to get their observations to the telegraph office uh, early. 
Um, and of course, when you get to the telegraph office, there may be a pile of telegraph uh, uh, telegraphs that need to be sent out before yours uh, get sent out. So there's a backlog there. And so that's a lot of, of this. It's not a matter of um, of them being lazy or anything like that or being of slacking off. It's just a matter, a, a lot of that did depend on the fact that the telegraphs have to come in at a certain time and if they don't, you know, it's, you're just waiting on every single a bit of information that you can get in. Although there were other problems, which we'll get to. Um, the chief signal officer at the time was Adolphus Greeley, who had taken over the position from General William Hazen in 1887. Um, Greeley became famous as part of this disastrous Greenland ex expedition, which lasted from 1881 to about 1885, I believe, uh, where 25 men set out and only six would return, return alive, including Greeley. Um, the group had gone up to Greenland to set up meteorological stations and do research, uh, but they were kind of enticed to plan the American flag as opposed to uh, close to the North Pole as possible, which it kind of, you know, they're, they're scientists and they're explorers. They're kind of uh, lured by that, which is understandable. Um, uh, and they did do that. They planted it very, very close to the um, uh, pole on May 15th, 1882. Um, but after that, uh, they really start to suffer. Um, there's supply ships that are supposed to come. Um, one's, I, I believe one sank and then another one just couldn't get there and so turned back around. And, and at this point, they're running out of supplies. Um, Greeley uh, had been ordered to kind of move the party south at a certain time. Um, everybody was kind of protesting that, but he made them go anyway. And uh, they moved south in August of 1883. Uh, during this, they become stranded. They lose some boats and a lot of food. And they're starving to the point where they start digging up the bodies of men who had already died. Um, and 18 men died over the course of, of this winter and spring. And they dug up those bodies to use them as food because they just were that strapped for supplies. When they were rescued, Greeley was treated as a hero and promoted to captain in spite of his tragic decision to move the group southward, which I'm sure the other people who were saved probably didn't really like that and grumbled under their breath, but um, that's sort of the way of things. Um, <laughs> Greeley uh, faced multiple issues and controversies when he took over the Signal Corps. Uh, in 1881, uh, the chief financial manager of the Signal Corps was arrested for embezzling nearly a uh, quarter of a million dollars. Um, these, these, these controversies go back a ways. They, they kind of um, keep going. But there's a lot of, I mean, that's, that's a serious one. But there were some other ones. One observer was caught taking nude pictures of young women in the weather station, which is just must have been appalling at that particular time. Um, another observer, and I love this, another observer made up a week's worth of observations ahead of time. He took them down to the local telegraph office with instructions to send them off one a day, not all at once, just one a day, so that he could take the week off and go fishing. <laughs> I love that guy, by the way. Um, one observer 
had gotten into some gambling debts. So he decided that he was going to hawk all of the weather equipment, uh, the weather instruments to pay off those debts. And instead of kind of coming forward and saying, you know, look, I had to sell these, these instruments so that I could pay off some debts. Um, what he would do is he would just go down to the pawn shop and make his observations at the appropriate times every day, which I'm sure the pawn shop owner, uh, the pawnbroker really liked. Um, now, one name that you need to know is a man named uh, First Lieutenant Thomas Woodruff. Uh, Thomas Woodruff went through the six-month training process for the Signal Corps in 1883. Uh, he wrote a pamphlet on cold waves in 1885 after being detailed for Signal Corps duty. Um, and he worked out of the St. Paul office and had done so since mid-October of 1887. Um, it actually took him a couple of weeks before he was able to even begin issuing um, indications. Uh, the St. Paul office was kind of new at the time. It had actually opened there rather in Chicago where Greeley had wanted to put it due to pressure from a, um, uh, quote, meteorological committee, close quotes, of local businessmen uh, so they could get predictions hour, hours earlier. They had really pressed hard for this, um, this Signal Corps office to open where um, they were in St. Paul because they really wanted to um, have that sort of information as soon as possible and save themselves a couple of hours. Uh, it was located in the Chamber of Commerce building at the corner of 6th and Robert in St. Paul. The instruments uh, that they used were all located on the roof because it was wrongly thought at the time that it was the best place to put um, uh, to take observations that high up. Uh, the instruments included thermometers, a rain gauge, a wind vane, and an anemometer. Uh, they were all kept outside. Uh, there were also two barometers, but they were placed in wooden cases in the office when not in use. Uh, the uh, people who worked in the Signal Corps office would check those instruments and uh, record those measurements at 6 a.m., 2 p.m., and 9 p.m. The St. Paul office, um, <clears throat> excuse me, was not exactly the most comfortable place in the world to be all that time. Um, the, it was cramped. It lacked telegraphic facilities. Um, there were two staff members already on duty who were very busy and were no help to Woodruff when he first arrived. And a data from a, other weather stations in the area arrived chronically late or not at all. Um, it was really difficult to, um, to make forecasts and get them out as, or indications I should say, um, make indications and get them out as quickly as possible because a lot of these observers you know, they may not get those observations in, they may not even take them, uh, they may not get them out to the telegraph office in time, uh, the telegraph office may be backed up. There are so many reasons why this data simply couldn't come in on time. Uh, he was, uh, Woodruff was the, the sole indications officer working there, so he would work from nine in the morning to midnight, six days a week, for six months with a five hour dinner break between the afternoon and nighttime observations and there was no leave. So he was working all the time. The observations from other stations that they would get, um, he would take these observations and he would mark them on a map. Um, you know, all, all the temperature, wind speed and direction, barometer, pressure, state of the weather, all of this stuff, all of these details would be written on this map. Um, you know, you kind of picture a big map in laminate with 
like a grease pencil. Um, it's probably, you know, one of those probably wasn't invented at the time, but, um, you know, you picture him writing those in and, um, you know, at the, he, you know, after you write all that in, you start connecting, okay, well, these places have kind of the same barometric pressure and you can kind of figure out where storms are moving, where they're heading, um, that sort of thing. Um, after he had all of that information, he would make the indications and an assistant would take them to the telegraph office in St. Paul to be sent out to places like the chief signal officer in D.C., the Associated Press, local newspapers, nearby observers. Uh, it, basically, it was one big phone tree. However, uh, the indications could get backlogged and not even go out for an hour or two. So it may take a little bit for that information to even get out and when it comes to weather uh, particularly at that time when they really couldn't forecast too far ahead um, you know every minute counts and so uh, all these backlogs that are an hour two hours three hours that's time that they're wasting and um, you know there may they may or may not be wasting it on purpose but they are losing precious minutes um, the 1887-1888 winter uh, was a rough one. Uh, it was so cold in some places prior to the new year that it was said that mercury in some of the thermometers froze. Um, on January 5th and 6th, a snowstorm dusted the northern and central plains in kind of this powdery snow. Uh, it, from January 7th to the 11th, the temperatures dropped to terrifyingly low numbers for days. Uh, in fact, the cold would continue from the 8th to the 22nd in January with only one day of hiatus on the 12th uh, when the um, temperatures warmed up. And that was the day the storm, um, the storm struck. On January 11th, a growing surface low pressure system moved south-southeast out of Alberta, Canada into central Montana. Uh, at the same time, a mass of Arctic air has been growing over Canada. Uh, in the winter on a clear day, um, if you don't live in a place that has kind of snow and, and, and cold in the winter, you know, first of all, lucky you. Um, second of all, um, what ends up happening sometimes is that it'll be a beautiful sunny day and you will have just... Um, uh, snow everywhere you know maybe you just got two feet of snow um, and so when what happens on a, on a beautiful sunny day like this where there isn't a cloud in the sky is that the sun is the light from the sun is reflecting off the snow and it's just going off into the atmosphere it's not bouncing back down again um, there's nothing really up there to keep it in and so the temperature starts to drop and this is what's happening in Canada um, there is a kind of an area in the center where um, this sort of thing happens, where, um, y you know, if it's a clear day and then there's all this snow, the, the cold, the temperatures just start dropping and dropping and dropping and dropping. Um, and that's what's happening. You have this big mass of cold in the middle of Canada. You have the cold front that's coming down into, uh, into the United States. And... While all of that is going on, you also have a mass of hot, uh, a warm and humid air that is coming up from Texas and Oklahoma. And when these three collide, that's when we have a problem. Uh, now, the requirements for a blizzard at the time were winds of 35 miles per hour, airborne crystals, and temperatures of 20 degrees or colder. Uh, the um, 
this kind of requirement, um, especially in the middle of the Great Plains, must have been uh, must have been something that happened a lot. It must have been a blizzard all the time, given um, the um, forecasts and the uh, recordings that they had at the time. Now it's January twelfth, eighteen eighty-eight. Uh, First Lieutenant Thomas Woodruff at the Signal Corps office in St. Paul issues indications at midnight. Uh, at the beginning of January 12th, which states, For St. Paul, Minnesota, and vicinity, warmer weather with snow, fresh southerly winds becoming variable. For Minnesota, warmer with snow, fresh to high southerly winds becoming variable. For Dakota, snow warmer, followed in the western portion by colder weather, fresh to high winds generally becoming northerly. The snow will drift heavily in Minnesota and Dakota during the day and tonight. The winds will generally shift to high, colder, northerly during the afternoon and night. Now, Woodruff did not issue a cold wave warning, which would warn that the temperature would fall below 45 degrees and that in 24 hours, uh, an abnormal fall of 15 or more degrees will, will occur. Um, cold and warm fronts were not really understood as well then as they are today, although to be fair, I, I am not the person to ask about cold and warm fronts. I'm kind of, um, uh, kind of giving you the, the basic information here. Um, the term for, uh, a front was borrowed from, uh, the name for the lines of opposing armies in World War One, which is when they really started to kind of get a handle on, on cold and warm fronts. The um, a front is where two masses of air come together too rapidly to mix. Uh, when you look at weather maps now, you can see them marked as lines. Uh, the lines with triangles are cold fronts, and the lines with sort of those kind of the half moon bumps on them are warm fronts. Uh, because it really wasn't something that they had a handle on before World War One, there were no fronts on the map that Woodruff drew and distributed that day. He had, as far as I understand it, he had enough information to, uh, you know, figure out where the fronts were, but because it wasn't something that um, that they understood really well at the time, he really couldn't do that. Um, if there had been a cold wave warning issued by Woodruff, uh, messages would be telegraphed to the weather stations across the area he covered to alert them to hoist the cold wave flag. Uh, what that flag was was a six by eight foot white rectangular sheet with a two foot black square centered in the middle. And that would be placed on the roof of the observation stair, uh, station in the area. Of course, you had to be able to see the flag, and you might not be able to see the flag from far away. Um, you know, if the weather has already started, you may not be able to see at all. Um, when Woodruff finally issued the order in the early afternoon of the January 12th, anyone who didn't live close enough to see it would more than likely not see it. Um, no matter where you were in relation to the um, uh, observation station in your area. Throughout the day, uh, January 11th, January 12th, um, Woodruff has noted the, the kind of the following barometric pressure at places like uh, Fort Assiniboine in Montana, where the pressure had dropped from 27.31 to 26.76 from the previous day. Uh, meanwhile, the temperatures had been rising in places like Bismarck and Huron. 
Um, after entering the 2 p.m. observations on the 11th, Woodruff had recognized the oval shape of low pressure over Medicine Hat in southern Alberta. So this is that low pressure. Um, he can see it moving down in the observations sent after the 9 p.m. check of the instruments. Uh, he could also see rising temperatures ahead of that low pressure system. Uh, for example, the temperature rose 20 degrees in North Platte, Nebraska, between the 3 p.m. and 9 p.m. observations on January 11th. Uh, the temperature had risen in Helena, Montana. Uh, it actually reached 40.5 degrees at one point uh, before it dropped like a rock in four and a half hours to nine below zero. Uh, some of these discrepancies in rising temperatures were attributed by Woodruff to a lack of timely data from other stations. It was really kind of, the information that he was getting was really difficult to understand for somebody in that time period and with somebody who understood that he had a lot of these issues. You know, it wasn't a matter of kind of dismissing, oh, well, that's, you know, that's crap. It was him kind of understanding, okay, you know what, the information doesn't always come in on time. Um, people may not be getting it to um, me at a certain time, and so we're getting these weird readings. But um, it wasn't exactly like that. Uh, the um, January 12th actually um, started with relatively warm temperatures for that time of year. This is a Thursday. Um, and you have to imagine these, these people who are living in the Midwest where the temperature, you know, is the temperatures are normally below zero for very, and they have been for a lot of the winter. Um, and they come outside on this particular January day and it's 28 degrees, not 28 degrees below, 28 degrees Fahrenheit. And you know, you hear that now, and particularly, I mean, if you're somebody who's from a warmer climate, that probably sounds just absolutely terrible and not really that much of a difference. But if you're somebody who actually gets to experience uh, a winter um, every year, it's a regular right, winter, and I live in northeastern Pennsylvania, we get all the, 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 um, the seasons, at least for now. Um, <laughs> and uh, every January... Um, you kind of expect that you're going to get that weekend where all of a sudden it's 60 degrees out or it's 50 degrees out. And it, you know it's not going to last, but it's usually one or two days and it's not something that's odd. It's one of those things where you come to expect it and you look forward to it. Like one of these weekends, the temperature is going to go up. Um, I don't know when. It may have stormed the week before, but we're going to go outside and it's going to be 40, 50 degrees outside and sunny. And like I said, it doesn't really happen that long, but you kind of get this feeling of, you know, oh, great, you know, we can go out and maybe today we won't have to wear a jacket or we won't have to wear a hat. Um, we don't have to wear our gloves today. And that was the way that a lot of people in the Great Plains on this particular day greeted the day. They came outside, they realized, you know, it's really warm out. And so relatively, I will say that relatively, when it's been 20 below for, for, a few days, if not a few weeks, and you come outside and it's 20 above, suddenly it feels like a heat wave. And so um, people not only are leaving their hat at home and their gloves at home, they are deciding that today's the day to get some stuff done. Um, it's warm out. Um, you know, we're heading to town to do some stuff. We're going to school today, even if it's not something that we really regularly do in the winter. Um, we're doing chores. 
uh, that we haven't got, been able to get done, going out to the barn, doing things that we have to do on the farm, all of these different kind of things. People were definitely trying to get that done before another storm comes or before the temperature drops. You know, these are realistic people. They understood that things, um, you know, it wasn't going to stay. It was a nice little um, uh, bit of relief until the next cold comes. Well, at this point, um, these, you have this large Arctic cold front and this mass of moisture-laden warm air from the Gulf of Mexico that are kind of on two different ends of Great Plains. And this low-pressure system, kind of the best way to describe it probably is that it slides right between the two and they just come right together. And they lock together like Voltron and uh, they create this blizzard. Um, once the blizzard starts kind of coming together and, and, and coming together and just moving across the Great Plains, those relatively warm temperatures which started the morning quickly drop back to 20 below in some places. The storm came on very fast. People went out their door to, to do a chore 10 feet away from the door and the next thing they knew the storm was on them. It was described by many as just this gray wall that roared out of nowhere. One of the uh, one of the anecdotes that's described in the children's blizzard is this um, teacher and his students are out kind of having a late morning recess and they hear this roar coming from nowhere. And I mean, it's a nice day. It's, a, you know, it's sunny and, and kind of warm and they're out playing and all of a sudden they hear the sound and they turn around and, and, and the blizzard is just basically this monster coming toward them and they didn't even get inside before it just overtook them. The roar that they were hearing was just these turbulent winds that were being generated in the cold front that were smashing the snow in this blizzard into a really fine powder. Everybody, had a, Every description that you see of people who survived this blizzard describes the powder as, as just like, like flour, like that consistency, really, really small and really, really just dust. And the thing about that sort of kind of snow dust is that it doesn't stop at your clothes. It doesn't stick to your clothes. It filters through your clothes and goes underneath and cakes beneath them closer to your skin. And that's a bad thing, which we'll get to later. Um, because of the way that the swirling was going on and all of the, the snow and everything that happened and how quickly it happened, visibility was almost zero. You could not see your hand in front of your face. That's how bad it was. Family members were trying to help family who had walked outside and had gone to do a chore and then all of a sudden the snow was on them and, the, and they realized really quickly that, you know, their son-in-law, their, their husband, their um, wife, whoever may have walked outside is not going to be able to find their way back in. And so they're doing things like lighting candles and leaving them burning in the windows all night long or banging kettles with hammers to try and help those lost in the storm find their way home. And there are a few um, anecdotes written in the Children's Blizzard about um, people who had done that, who'd been, you know, standing outside banging on a bucket with a hammer, just trying to get, you know, uh, somebody to find their way home. And it worked uh, for some of them. 
Uh, the storm first struck Montana in the early hours of January 12th and then swept through the Dakota Territory from mid-morning to early afternoon. Um, in Huron, in central Dakota, Signal Corps Observer Sergeant Samuel Glenn went up the, to the roof of the Huron station at 11.42 a.m. to check his instruments. Um, he, I mean, for him to know it that precisely, he must have been like holding his watch as he was checking everything and writing everything down. Um, while he was up there, um, he was nearly blown off the roof when the storm just abruptly appeared out of nowhere. Um, all of these stations have a journal and they have um, they have something that you can write in to describe what's going on and what the weather was like that day. And each of these journals has every day labeled with about three inches of space that you can fill up with details about, you know, the temperature and the weather and um, the barometric pressure, everything that happened that day at your particular observer station, um, it, it can be filled into this journal. Uh, Sergeant Glenn writes down everything that he can into that three inches of space. And then he writes the phrase disastrous storm in the margin. And then he took the initiative and he wrote nine more handwritten pages about what was happening and added them into the journal. And that was the story with a lot of people who would survive the the blizzard is that they wrote down a lot of their stories. There's actually um, a book or two that I wasn't really able to get because there's a lot of them are kind of hard to get. Um, but I guess there's a book out there that kind of, um, but it was the source for a lot of stuff in the children's blizzard, which is a lot easier to get. Um, but um, it's basically just um, people's accounts of what happened. Um, a lot of people had sat down and just kind of wanted to get that on paper. They understood that they had lived through a storm that was that was phenomenal. In Groton, in the Dakota Territory, uh, the teachers at the school there, uh, when the storm kind of struck out of nowhere, they really needed to figure out what to do. Um, the reason that this blizzard is, is called the schoolhouse blizzard or the children's blizzard is because of the time that it struck. It really stuck, struck in the early afternoon, late afternoon, um, precisely at the time when students were either going home or about to go home. So that was one of the problems that they had. You had a lot of teachers who were standing there seeing the storm coming at them at the school and trying to decide what to do. Um, you can stay in the school, um, you know, but do you have enough fuel to do that? Do you have enough uh, fuel for the heater? Are you going to have to burn desks and chairs? Um, is it a bad idea? Do you realize it's a bad idea? If you realize it's a bad idea, do you have a way of getting to, say, the boarding house across the street? Is, is Are you going to get lost on the way there? And particularly with the wind blowing at you and visibility zero, it, it, it may be more dangerous for you to go that way and tr attempt that than it is to simply hide out in this schoolhouse. In this particular case, um, there were there were 100 children in this four-room schoolhouse, which that was a relatively big schoolhouse. A lot of the frontier schoolhouses that you'll see or read about are, are basically just big wooden sheds. Uh, the storm itself grew so quickly that teachers decided, you know, we're going to keep the students inside here. We're not letting them out. Um, however, these five drays, which drays are basically, um, as they were described in the book, they're basically wooden platforms mounted on bobsleds and pulled by horses. I kind of just picture a, an enormous sled, an enormous red flyer. Um, they appeared at the school. Um, people had come out to bring the children home. Uh, 
Uh, so the children all load up on these trays, uh, but one child, uh, Walter Allen, decides to go back into the school. He had this little perfume bottle that he kept in his desk. Uh, it was a little glass perfume bottle. He kept water in there so that he could clean off the slate. And he, it was a prized possession. It was something that he really liked. And so he wanted to make sure that he got that and brought it home with him so that it wouldn't freeze in the school and break. So he got off the, the dray and he went back in the school. Uh, when he came back inside, outside after getting the perfume bottle, the drays had left. They hadn't even noticed he got off, so they left. Uh, and at this point, he decides, okay, well, I'll, I'll just walk home on my own. Um, he got disoriented in the snow. And as soon as they start getting kids home, they realize Walter's not there. So his father, um, his older brother, Will, and some others come to find him. Um, the father and the the other people are kind of trying to decide, well, is it worth looking for him? You know, I'm sure he's around here somewhere, um, you know, but maybe it's better if we just go home, you know, that kind of thing. While they're doing all of this, his older brother, Will, um, actually found him and was able to, uh, he was unconscious, and he was actually able to drag Walter to the safety of their father's law office nearby, um, which was actually next door to their home, I believe. Um, uh, he was alive and he, he, he did survive that and he wasn't um, harmed, but um, the perfume bottle he'd gone back to recover had shattered in the cold. So it really, um, that didn't really matter in the end. The storm reached Lincoln, Nebraska by 3 p.m. Uh, there were 10 railroads served in the capital and none of them were moving due to the snow. Now in Nebraska, you get a few more stories of school teachers who uh, were trying to save their students and either either failed or they um, or maybe they weren't saving their students which I'll, I'll get into this but there were a few more stories of, of school teachers who really were trying to survive in the storm in Plainview Nebraska you have school teacher Lois Royce she was trapped with three of her students in the schoolhouse uh, she stayed there uh, they stayed there but by 3 p.m. there was no more he heating fuel uh, her boarding house is only 82 yards away from the school, so she decides they're going to venture out and head for safety there. Uh, this was the thing that a lot of uh, school teachers tried. You know, if, if we can't stay in the schoolhouse, fine, then we'll go to the house that I am staying at, the boarding house that I am living at, and we will go there and you can just stay the night with me. Visibility was so bad that they just quickly got lost. Um, they ended up spending the whole night outside. Um, it was her, two nine-year-old boys, and a six-year-old girl. Um, as she told it, um, one boy died first, um, then another. And towards the end of the night, um, the six-year-old girl just kind of started to babble a little, and then she died as well. And at that point, Lois Roy starts crawling on hands and knees to a nearby farmhouse. Um, she survived, um, but she ended up losing her feet to frostbite. Um, in Holt County, Nebraska, uh, one of the more famous stories of the storm was the story of 19-year-old school teacher Etta Shattuck. She was the daughter of a Civil War veteran who had moved his family west to take advantage of the Homestead Act but he had not really succeeded as a farmer. Um, Etta's small paycheck of $25 a month was the sole source of income her, her parents, and her four siblings had. Male school teachers at the time were making 30 or to 50% more than the female ones. She was making $25 a month. 
Uh, she was described by people as very religious, um, very, a very, kind of a very good person, very steady person. Um, she taught at the one room schoolhouse in Bright Hope School District, or at least she did at the time. At 10 days into January, Etta closes a school until spring, uh, but she wouldn't be back there uh, when it reopened as she was moving back with her family to the town of Seward. She missed them. She wanted to move back. On the 12th of January, she sets foot, she sets off on foot to the home of school district superintendent J.M. Parkins to get the order she needed to have signed so that the treasurer could pay her for her last month of work. Uh, she was actually leaving on the train tomorrow or the day after, I should say, the fri uh, Friday, the uh, Friday the 13th to return to her family. Uh, but the storm struck so suddenly she didn't even see it coming. Uh, the father of the family that she was boarding with actually shouted after her. Um, he felt the wind, with the wind shifting. He saw this dark cloud coming out of the Northwest, uh, but she really didn't hear him. And it basically came out of nowhere and just, that was it. He couldn't even see her anymore. Um, she kept going and, you know, trying to stumble forward in the storm. And the only thing that she knew at that particular point, she couldn't get back to the house, but she knew there was a fence that was all around the property. So she at least was fine just as long as she stayed in the fence line. And her intention was to get to the fence, hold on to the fence, and then follow the fence back to the house. The problem was that with a storm like this, it's so stressful and it's so upsetting and it's so tense that you know this kind of tension that rises up in you and it just it, you know we when things are when you're stressed out like that it's really hard to make decisions and you you may do things that you didn't even know you were going to do or that you um you may get so upset that you just do things that you you don't even understand and she was so bewildered by the time she reached the fence that she actually bent over got on her hands and knees and crawled underneath it at that point she took about two steps and the lack of visibility just made returning to the fence, the house, all of that just absolutely impossible. So Etta Shattuck keeps stumbling along until she finds a haystack. And she crawls over and digs a cavity in the side of it and crawls in. Uh, it's, it's not the best place to seek shelter. Um, her hands were already f kind of freezing and her legs and feet were just barely protected by where she was. Um, but she was, she was out of the storm. She was, you know, her, her legs were, were not as protected as they could have been, you know, but t she's out of it. And that's the important thing. She was stuck in that haystack for 78 hours. Um, the owner of the haystack or um, the land the haystack was on, the haystack, all of it, um, was a man named Daniel D. Murphy. Um, he and his f hired hands came out um, that particular day at to um, that she was found to um, kind of examine what was going on. And, and um, they heard a voice kind of calling out and they realized it was coming from the haystack. And at that point, they start to extricate her from this haystack and they realize that her legs are frozen. Um, and that the, the haystack has kind of become impacted by all the snow and everything. And it's kind of, that's why she hasn't gotten out because she's been stuck in there. But um, her legs are just in dreadful shape. Um, her family did not receive news of her fate until January 17th. Uh, she couldn't, couldn't even be moved until the 23rd. And at that point, they kind of put her on a sleigh or sled 
um, in a, um, cover in hay in a, in a blanket and they, uh, her father and, you know, some people kind of escort her to the train where she's kind of put in the baggage car on a, on a cot and kind of left to lie comfortably. She never complains. Um, she really is described as the kind of person who seems like she would complain. She talks about God and she talks about God very, very respectfully and very, um, worshipfully and, 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 and in a very, um, very, peaceful way she kind of you know god will take care of me that kind of thing you know it's very um it's very understandable that she was able to kind of get through this as well as she did uh, to a point on january 26th um, she went through surgery to have both of her legs amputated just below the knee um Five days later, the Omaha Bee, which is a, a newspaper, would set up the Shattuck Special Fund to raise money to support her. Um, we'll get into that a little later, but um, the Omaha Bee did that for, for um, more than one victim of the uh, blizzard. On February 2nd, she took a term for the worst, though, either from sepsis or pneumonia. And on February 6th, she passed away following uh, the surgery to remove uh, her frostbitten uh, feet and, hand and legs. Now, at this point, um, she had been in the news. Uh, people had started to know her name. And so um, she'd gotten a little bit famous. Um, and an Omaha undertaker sent the most expensive coffin they had free of charge to Seward for the Shattuck family. Um, she was actually buried among Salvation Army veterans. She was um, given a really beautiful funeral, this this large funeral. Um, you know, but you have to keep in mind, she's getting all of that. And meanwhile, there are families who are sufficing with whatever coffin they can nail together to bury their children in. Um, there were people who were really, um, you know, not in the financial position to, or, you know, in the spotlight, media spotlight, the way that she was. Um, at least after after being in the media spotlight um, and getting the kind of financial support that she did. Um, again, there's there's more stories of, of a, there's another story that is also um, famous, but this has a slightly happier ending. Um, I say slightly. Um, in Mira Valley, Nebraska, a school teacher named Minnie Freeman successfully led 16 children to her home a half a mile away from the schoolhouse. Um, her schoolhouse was a sod house and the storm blew in the door a couple of times before they finally had to nail it shut. Uh, rumors went around that she had used a rope to tie the children together so as not to lose them. Uh, the, the rumors, um, they may, it may be sort of, you know, um, uh, folklore kind of a thing. Um, one of the children who was saved by her uh, disputed that, so... Um, but it was one of those things, you know, it sounds like this, um, heroic gesture and it, I mean, it was, but you know, they're always want to elaborate one or two things. Um, she became very famous for, for saving all these children and keeping them all alive. Uh, there was a song, the song of the great blizzard 13 were saved, which was also known as Nebraska's fearless maid. Uh, it says 13. Um, I looked in. Um, you know, I've seen a couple of sources, 16 children, 13 children. Suffice it to say, she saved more than a dozen children. Um, the song was written and recorded by William Vincent that year in her honor. On the evening of January 12th, Th uh, Thomas Woodruff could see that the cold was heading toward them quickly. Um, since the start of the day on January 12th, 
the temperature had fallen 50 degrees in Helena, 32 degrees in North Platte, and 55 degrees in Keokuk, Iowa. So he knew that there was something coming. Uh, in the Friday the 13th indications, Woodruff described what was coming that night as colder, which is sort of a vast understatement. The people who were stuck outside all night long, um, if they survived that cold, it was a miracle. Um, I'll get into that a little more um, uh, in a little bit. Um, the two, the number of the dead is kind of, um, it's not really specific. The number that you may see quoted more than once is 235. Um, you know, I think, I believe it's on Wikipedia. It's on a couple of other places. I did look at a kind of a listing of, from a government document of um, different disasters. And that one lists 235, which is maybe where Wikipedia is getting it from. Um, it, it seems to be kind of anywhere between 250 and 500. Suffice it to say, a lot of people died. Um, a uh, great many of those were in the southern and eastern parts of the Dakota Territory. Um, the causes of death, uh, you know, there were a couple of causes of death, um, most notably freezing to death. Um, when you're outside in weather like this um, and you're unprotected, you're, you're starting to lose consciousness, start, you know, you're starting to, to experience hypothermia, all of that. Um, first of all, your core temperatures begin to drop as the body loses heat to the air. Um, if you have wet clothing, as a lot of these people did because that fine snow was filtering through their clothes and getting all the way down to their skin and when kind of wetting their underclothes, their, their shirts, whatever they were wearing closest to the skin, uh, that zaps away body warmth um, as bodies lose more heat when they're wet. Uh, cold wind blowing past the body blows away heat, much like when you blow on hot soup to cool it. In the wind chill you would have experienced that night, exposed skin would freeze in 10 minutes. It, it's, it's just absolutely appalling. And really, um, it, it's the kind of thing that you'd experience in Antarctica. Um, it's just absolutely terrible, whatever they were experiencing out there. Um, as you're freezing, um, blood is retreating to the core of your body to protect your organs. What that means is it's coming out of your extremities um, and it leaves your extremities, at, your legs and your arms at risk for frostbite. Um, frostbite can almost literally turn your flesh to ice. Um, I did a presentation in my last year of college in a kind of a nature and environment class on um, the, you know, kind of into thin air story, you know, the, the Mount Everest storm in 1996. Um, and I did have photos of uh, Beck Weathers who had kind of some very severe frostbite on his face where his nose and his cheeks had gone black and um, his hands were, were black and ice, you know, they looked like they were marble in some places. It really is, it's not attractive. And I basically, um, I, I could have put them into the presentation that I was giving, but I kind of said to everybody, you know, I didn't put those pictures in, be grateful. Um, it's, it's not attractive. You can, you can go and um, uh, search on, on Google for pictures of frostbite and you're just going to see, I mean, it's appalling and it's basically, I mean, you are turning to ice. Um, uh, you know, obviously you're not literally turning to ice, but it, this is kind of what's happening. The fluids in your body are, are freezing. 
the way of that they would treat it in those days, um, kind of as a home remedy, was to rub it with snow and then let it thaw gradually in warm water. Problem is, that's really painful. Um, after doing this, the skin would soon blister and turn inky purplish black, which is a bad thing. Um, this is when gangrene would set in and that appendage would have to be amputated. Um, a lot of the stories that you read of people who survived the um, blizzard, um, a lot of them who had, you know, uh, frostbite, and they lost feet. They lost legs. They lost um, a lot of them lost legs. That was, you know, lost, losing legs and losing feet um, was the main issue that seemed to um, happen a lot because they were trudging through the snow and so their feet were cold. Um, one particular story that you see in the children's blizzard, there was one little girl who had gone to school that day in sort of ballet flats, I guess would probably be the best description for, for the shoes that she seemed to be wearing. And when they had to leave the schoolhouse and start walking, um, they had wrapped scarves around her feet. But, uh, you know, in that sort of weather, the scarves just fell off really quickly. And they too had to, um, those children and their school teacher had to hide in a, in a haystack. And when they came to rescue her the next day, her, um, her feet looked like grayish white marble. It just was really terrifying to see. And she did lose a foot. Um, shivering helps when you're out in cold like that, uh, but it also burns heat and calories. Once shivering stops, that's kind of the last sign. That is, your body is just rapidly going to shut down. Um, as you get colder, in terms of your behavior, you get grumpier and irritated. You're really kind of just... Um, grumbling and, and just snappish and uh, your mind starts to become clouded. You don't really know what's going on. Um, you, eventually your speech is slurred and you act drunk. You can stumble around. Um, uh, your body is beginning to be starved of oxygen so that you, you start having hallucinations. You start seeing things that um, uh, you, you know, that you, you should know aren't real, but they appear real to you. Um, and you may also start doing something called paradoxical undressing. Basically what that is, is you are so messed up by being as cold as you are that you start to feel hot. And because you feel hot, you start stripping. And so if you ever read a story about somebody who was out all night in the cold and they were found, you know, um, with clothes that have come off, it may be that they are experiencing paradoxical undressing and that's what happened that they just felt you know that they were so cold they felt hot and so they just started taking their their sweater off their you know their pants off their shirt off all of that there were um a lot of people who who died that way um there were uh, a lot of different stories of things like that um in in the children's blizzard in the book um there was a story of four children in one family who were lost during the storm um when they went out to find them uh they actually found the oldest uh girl who was a teenager standing up straight against a tree and her younger siblings were all around her feet uh there were five boys in rosefield township in the dakota territory who were actually part of i believe a german mennonite uh, group um, and, uh, they got separated from their teacher and two other boys who they had all left the schoolhouse and they were all trying to find another place to go. And, uh, the other, the other two children and, um, 
the teacher had kind of gone off on their own. Um, and they had found shelter and they had survived, but these five boys had gone off on their own. Um, uh, and they had frozen to death in the storm. Uh, they weren't found until Sunday. This is a story of a lot of people where they really weren't finding the bodies immediately. They were finding them later, a few days, a few weeks, a few months when the thaw came. Um, but on Sunday, uh, a farmer was going through one of his fields and he, he did find them uh, lying out there. Um, at that point, the news was rushed back to the church where all of their families attended. And they kind of said, you know, we found these bodies in this field. Um, you may want to come and identify them. Uh, so the, the, the fathers went and uh, they found the bodies of the boys. Um, there were three of the boys were brothers. Um, one of the older brothers was holding one of his younger brothers in his embrace still, even though they had both frozen. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, the three boys who were brothers, I mean, they were all, all, all five of the boys were brought home and they really did have to kind of thaw them out a little bit with the hopes that, you know, rigor mortis has set in, they're frozen. They really can't fit them into a coffin the way that they are. So they took these bodies home and it wasn't, you know, they didn't take them to, you know, a funeral home or anything like that. It's the Great Plains. You, you can't just do that. So they took them back to the homestead, to the sod house. <clears throat> And these three boys had, you know, they had younger siblings and these poor kids are, are sitting there while their frozen older brothers are brought into the house and set next to the stove to be warmed up. And this is, you know, it's one of those things that when you're a pioneer, you have to deal with these kind of gruesome scenarios. And um, so, you know, even <clears throat> years down the line, um, one of their younger siblings, who was th who's only three years old, he said he's distinctly remembered, you know, seeing them lying next to the to the stove and um, his mother sort of laughing, you know, kind of hysterically, she, you know, she had kind of reached a breaking point uh, um, and just started laughing. Um, <clears throat> there was another way that that people died as well, though, and it was shock. Um, this happened with a few people, uh, but this is a pretty good example of, of what I mean by shock. Um, there were two children. Uh, it was a 12-year-old named Amelia Shirk and her stepfather's brother, who's 16-year-old Omar Gibson. And the two of them were going home on a horse and in, in the storm, and uh, they realized that they weren't going to be able to get back home like that. So they got off the horse, they took the horse blanket, and they kind of got down on the ground and put the horse blanket over them. And they spent the entire night out there. And somehow they survived the entire night under this horse blanket. So the morning comes and they take the horse blanket off. And at this point, Omar gets up to go get help. He walks a couple of steps and he drops dead. What happened was that he had been fighting off the cold all night long. He'd been lying on the ground, um, fighting off the cold. Uh, his body had been, you know, conserving the heat the way that it does in the cold like that, which is basically, you know, you're keeping all the cold blood away from the, from, from the extremities, uh, you know, in the extremities while the warm blood is near the heart and the organs and that sort of thing. And so what ended up happening though is in the morning when he stands up there's a change in the position of his body now he's standing up and there's a change in his heart rate because now he's getting up and he's moving around it, it kind of starts moving when you're 
lying down like when you're out in the cold like that your heart rate still slows down because um, your body's trying to conserve energy um, so it can survive longer and so he stands up and the increase in the heart rate and the change in the position sent those that colder blood that was in his extremities into his heart just pumped into his heart right in his heart and it seized up and it caused a cardiac arrest and and he like i said he was not the only one that happened to there's another story in in the children's blizzard of another little boy who had that happen to him as well um your body just can't take that um it's too much of a shock to the system um and as i said before and a lot of these bodies weren't found immediately what ended up happening was that in the spring when the snow melted people start finding bodies um they find uh horses cows um some uh, you know um children adults all these dead people who are just who'd gone missing in the storm and they were just revealed to the world um one man who had lost um i can't remember if it was um a child or, or more than one child in the storm um he was out mowing his lawn in the uh in the spring and he accidentally ran over a body that he didn't even see of a child who was out in his yard and cut off its leg you know this is the kind of thing that people were experiencing at that time they, they just were you know you're just kind of walking through your fields and, and you know you know riding your horse you know taking out the cattle and you just find you know the body of a child lying in the middle of your field um, and you know exactly where it came from. You know what is what storm it came from. You know what day it's missing from. And you may even know what child it is, considering at that time they may have known, okay, well, you know, Jimmy, Johnny, Edda, Barbara didn't come home this day. Uh, the states affected included South Dakota, North Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, Nebraska, Kansas, and Minnesota. The first five of those were territories at the time. Um, but it was this, I mean, if you look at a map, that, that's a huge area that was affected by this particular blizzard. Um, as I mentioned before, they set up a special fund to help at a shattuck, but they also started, um, the Omaha Bee uh, started what was called a heroin fund. Um, heroin isn't super heroin, um, not heroin the drug. Um, when all of these stories of these heroic school teachers started circulating, you have um there's all these stories coming out after the after the storm it took a few days for uh telegraph offices to reopen you have all these telegraph lines down and then they start sending out these stories and it's just story after story after headline after headline of you know dead children lying on the great plains um it they're not happy stories nobody wants to hear these so they want some good stories and so they get these heroic stories of lois royce and minnie freeman and etta shattuck who at the same you know at this particular time still has not passed away um, and so they established this heroin fund to assist these women to give them some sort of support it had reached eleven thousand two hundred sixty seven dollars and fifty six cents by the end of February um, at the time um, at had already passed away so her bereaved family received three thousand seven hundred and fifty two dollars and one cent uh, Minnie Freeman had received, <clears throat> also received a portion, and she was also given a gold watch um, from, I don't, I don't believe it was associated with the fund, but she was given a gold watch with a chain that resembled the rope she supposedly tied her students together with. She also um, received a slew of marriage proposals in the mail, like you do. Um, when it came to the Signal Corps, um, Adolphus Greeley 
uh, really in the aftermath of the blizzard seemed more concerned by the effects of the storm on sugar growers in the south than he seemed to be on the dead children scattered across the Great Plains. Um, he really seems to have kicked into motion when he realized that the storm was moving down into sort of Texas and Oklahoma and uh, bringing with it cold and snow and, and just kind of um, impacting that, that business down there. And so there's, it, it seems like in the Children's Blizzard, there's a lot of documentation of him sort of writing furious letters saying, this is your fault, you did this, and um, you need to see about this and get me more observations. It's just all kinds of things like that. He really doesn't seem to have been... Um, bothered so much by those children dying as he did by, you know, sugar crops dying. Um, but that would not last long. Um, there would be some more concern for people very shortly. Um, Woodruff himself, who, who really um, kind of got the brunt of um, the blame in the aftermath of the blizzard, um, you know, you can't really be sure whether or not he could have predicted what was going to happen, but um, they really needed a scapegoat. And so he got, you know, kind of went back to him. Um, he left the Signal Corps on June 1st of 1888. Uh, two years later, he was finally promoted to captain and he rejo rejoined his regiment in Florida. Uh, he was served in the Spanish-American War and he died in, of yellow fever in Cuba on July 11th, 1899, and would be buried in Arlington National Cemetery, uh, where his widow and his daughter uh, would see him buried. Uh, that was not the last blizzard that would occur that winter. Um, in March, the Great Blizzard of 1888 would strike the east coast of the United States on the 12th and the 14th, through the 14th, it dumped two feet of snow in New York and four feet outside the city. Uh, it left 400 dead, 200 of those in New York City. Um, they would talk about drifts that were 20 feet high. Um, it kind of it kind of came out of nowhere and it just started snowing and it didn't stop. Um, one of the things that changed in the aftermath of that blizzard, because not a lot really changed in the aftermath of the schoolhouse blizzard, but what changed in the aftermath of the great blizzard of 1888 was that um, if you look at pictures of New York City in the 1880s and you look at pictures of New York City today, you'll see something very noticeable that is different between now and then. And that is that back then there were uh, power lines above, uh, telegraph lines, railway lines, electrical lines, all kinds of different, you know, uh, lines, wires that are up above their heads. Um, and when I say, you know, wires, you may not think of too many wires, but this was New York City. There were a lot of people there. And when you see these wires, it's three stories of wires that are crisscrossing and sort of like just a, just an enormous spider web of wires that were everywhere in New York City. And they had talked even before the storm about moving all of those wires underground just in case of a storm like this, uh, you know, but they really hadn't done anything about it for the longest time. And then the Great Blizzard of 1888 comes along. It starts bringing down power lines and telegraph lines everywhere. And it cut off communication with the Signal Corps office in New York to the Signal Corps office in Washington, D.C. Um, it, um, it just um, had all these electrical wires that were just dangling and, and 
making things real dangerous for people who are already trying to get through an impossible situation, get home in the storm. And so um, because of that, after the storm, New York City starts to run those wires underground. And when you look at uh, pictures of New York now, there's no wires anywhere. Um, at least in the city, I'm really not, I mean, outside the city, there might, there might be some more, you know, outside of the, the main, um, but I know that if you look at pictures of like Manhattan, you're not going to see wires anywhere. Um, due to the timing of the storm, um, the, uh, it also led to the Signal Corps changing the rules so the offices stayed open on Sundays as well. Um, I, they hadn't really before, and that was why, say, when I said Woodruff had to work six days a week, um, he got Sundays off, but... Um, or at least most of Sunday off. Apparently he had to work nights, I believe. So, I mean, this is the kind of thing that you're looking at. Um, it, it was something that really made dealing with that particular storm difficult, and so they fixed it. Um, and that's the thing. When it happened in the Great Plains, it was a lot easier to kind of, um, I don't want to say hand wave, but um, it didn't seem... Um, as important, I guess. When it strikes New York City, oh, it's very important. Um, and so that was why when it hit New York City, it kind of um, started ringing alarm bells for people that maybe something needed to change. Um, in 1890, the government transferred responsibility for data gathering and weather forecasting from the Signal Corps to the Department of Agriculture. Um, obviously, you know, you, you had all these problems with the Signal Corps, all of these sort of minor controversies and major controversies that had gone on. And then after these two blizzards happened, um, the government kind of had had enough and they transferred um, the responsibility for this to the Department of Agriculture. And later on, of course, you know, they would branch, it would branch off to the National Weather Bureau as we know it today. Um, in, um, after the blizzard, um, things sort of started to disintegrate a little bit, maybe not because of the blizzard, but things kind of changed in the prairie. Um, immigration to the plains was kind of slowing at the time of the blizzard. Um, in 18, in the 1890s, the early 1890s, I believe it was, it just drought ravaged the plains. There was just drought everywhere. So of course you have all of this, uh, all these crops that are just dry and, and not, not worth anything. Um, in 1893, there was a depression which bankrupted thousands who had borrowed against their land. And so by the end of the century, over 60% of pioneer families had abandoned their homesteads. Um, when it comes to memorials, um, there's really, I mean, it's not one of those things where there's a big central memorial. Um, there is a Venetian glass mural of the blizzard um, by uh, an artist named Jean uh, Raynal who uh, that was installed in the on the west wall of the North Bay of the Nebraska State Capitol in Lincoln for the 1967 centennial celebration and it depicts depicts the story of Minnie Freeman tying her charges together with rope and leading them to safety. Um, again, whether or not that is completely true, it's still, she still saved them. So, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it, the details may be a little much. Um, but, uh, this is not one of those, you know, like I said, there's not one where there's a, a central memorial. Um, you know, there's not one place that this happened. It seemed to happen everywhere in the Great Plains. Um, it was a huge storm. And, um, I think part of the reason that I wanted to do this particular subject was that um, it's December, it's Christmas, 
it's, you know, look outside. Well, now it's not Christmas, actually. It's after midnight. Um, but, um, I, you know, I, I, when I look out my window, I see snow. And I tend to think every winter about the way that things have changed since I was a kid. Um, when I was a kid, um, the uh, when I was in a sophomore in high school, the blizzard of 93 uh, blew through my area. And I remember that being the year that... Uh, it was either that year or or the blizzard of 95, but I'm, I almost distinctly remember. I'm, I'm like 90% positive it was the blizzard of 93. Um, we were stuck in the house for a week, uh, literally. <laughs> we could just could not get out of the house. You couldn't get out of the house. You couldn't go anywhere. Um, and, you know, it's kind of fun to be able to stay home on a snow day, but by the fifth snow day in a row... You're, you're just bored. You just want to go to school and see your friends and you just want to get out. Um, I believe that was the year that um, the roads were closed. There was a state of emergency. And at a certain point, my family ran out of cause for the basics, you know, bread, milk, eggs. You know, we had bought them, but this this was a, a storm that lasted for days. So my father, um, because, we, because it was a state of emergency and you were supposed to drive on the roads, my father got on his snowmobile and nearly got arrested because they said there weren't supposed to be vehicles on the road and he got on his snowmobile and went downtown and i guess um the mayor tried to get him arrested the mayor who was mayor at the time of our town um and he just sort of argued his way out of it saying look what do you want me to do my kids need food can i go to the to the mini mart now and get them some some essentials um but uh that is what i remember from my childhood i don't really remember having a storm that bad since since those years. I mean, they've they've seemed to have steadily gotten more tolerable. I guess you know. I I feel I I, I don't see as much of the um of of the you know a foot foot and a half. Um, storms, at least in my area, that I used to when I was a kid. That's not to say they haven't happened. I just seem to not be remembering them as I, or as happening or happening as frequently as they did when I was a kid. Um, uh, and I know that's anecdotal evidence and not the best. But, um, you know, it... I love when it snows, at least when I don't have to drive in it. And so, um, you know, it's probably one of the, the best things in the world to be able to have nothing to go to, to do, nowhere to go, have a nice cup of hot chocolate, um, you know, full Kindle and, um, and, uh, just be snuggled up under a blanket with the heater on, um, and the cat in your lap, like not going anywhere and just reading all day. That's, that is the best. And while I don't, um, particularly like winter. I like being able to kind of do all of that and look out the window and see flakes falling past my window. It's nice. It's calming. It's, it's, um, you know, even with some of the anxiety and depression I deal with, you know, if anything that makes me happy, I'll latch on to. And so, um, you know, unfortunately I just, um, a few hours ago found out about George Michael passing away, which is unfortunate. Um, very unfortunate, particularly he passed away on Christmas and it's sort of, um, going to be hard to listen to last Christmas from now on. Um, but, uh, it reminds me of, um, uh, you know, once upon a time, I, one of my pets, I had a chinchilla and one of my chinchillas passed away and I kind of went to my brother's house and, and I was upset and I was crying and I said, I just need to be around somebody. I'm really upset right now. And he said, wait, 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 I bet I can make you happy. I, I bet I can make you have, give you, let you listen 
to the happiest song you will ever hear, the happiest song ever written. And I had no idea what song he was going to play. He wouldn't say. He took me up to his room, and he went to his computer, and he started playing Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. <laughs> and ever since then, it makes me happy. It, it never fails to pick me up, no matter how bad my mood is in, no, no matter how bad my anxiety is, or no matter how bad my depression is. That song makes me so happy, and I feel that way about snow. It, I may not want to drive in it, but as long as I don't have to go anywhere in it, you know, I don't mind playing in it. I don't mind, uh, you know, walking in it. I, I love snow. I just don't like to drive in it. So um, I feel a lot of, well, I feel like snow the way I feel about Wake Me Up Before You Go Go. Um, uh, so that is that particular episode, um, taken care of. Um, I'm not sure what I'm doing for the next episode. Well, I think I know what I'm doing for the next episode. I have, oh, six days, seven days to do it. So, um, um, I'm trying to pick a subject that, um, I will be able to do in that time. And I think I know what I'm doing. Um, we'll see how it goes, but, um, Please think about donating to the Kickstarter, or if um, it kind of it doesn't really look like the Kickstarter is going to go through without a miracle. Um, so if you'd still kind of like to help out and donate, um, you can always, um, like I said, go through PayPal, uh, disasterarea at mail.com to kind of help out. We'll see if we can get, um, you know, um, maybe a new tablet or a new laptop, something that I can um, use to kind of um, get things going around here. But until next time, stay safe.